Did you know black men have higher death rates than women for all leading causes of death? 23% of black men 18 years of age and over smoke cigarettes. 40% of black men 20 years of age and over have hypertension. 40% of black men die prematurely from heart disease as compared to 21% of white men. And I have personal experience with friends who have died prematurely in their 40s of heart attacks, brain aneurysms. And so today we're going to have a conversation all around the state of black men's health in America. And I'm bringing on two young men who are physicians that I had an opportunity to get to know while they were in medical school. And today they are practicing medicine. And so this is going to be a great episode and a great conversation on the state of black men's health in America. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to another live episode of the Maximize Your Brand podcast. So excited to be with you today, as I am each and every week. And this is going to be a great episode, great episode, because we are talking about the state of black men's health in America. And if you've been following me for some time, you know that this month, June, is Men's Health Month. And I decided that what I wanted to do with my podcast this month is to tackle some of these men's health issues to include spiritual health, physical health, mental health, financial wellness and health, as well as we're going to have a little conversation around men's fashion later on this month as well. But today we're tackling physical health. And many of you who may or may not know, I am a former healthcare professional. I actually went to school in the area of public health, went to Meharry Medical College, got my master's of public health and worked for many years in uh, community health. Uh, As a matter of fact, federally qualified community health centers. And during that time, I had the grand opportunity to meet a lot of students from Meharry that were in medical school and dental school. And it's just one of those great experiences where You are on a campus of excellence and you get to see people who are about making an impact and being an influence in the world. And so it's so great to be able to have this conversation with two young men that I I got to meet. One, I really like because he's my frat brother and he chose the right fraternity. The other... I got to know him and got to like him, but he just went the wrong direction in the one of the other no, those other organizations. But we're going to have this conversation, and I'm not going to delay uh, us from uh, introducing these two young men. So first, let me introduce Atalo 
Brown, MD, MPH, Morehouse graduate, 2006, Boston University, 2008, Meharry Medical College in 2015, is an assistant professor in emergency medicine and health equity and social justice curriculum, lead at Stanford University School of Medicine. Throughout his career, Atalo has been at the front lines of social medicine and health equity. Atalo is the chief impact officer of TRAP, and he's going to hopefully explain what that is a little bit later. Medicine and barbershop-based wellness initiative that leverages the cultural capital of barbershops to address the physical and emotional health of black men and boys. He is a former board member of the Tennessee Healthcare Campaign, an organization that spearheads statewide advocacy efforts in support of the Affordable Care Act and Medicare Medicaid reform. Our next guest is Keelan Glosson, MD, MBA, is an attending physician in hospital medicine in middle Georgia. He is committed to meeting his patients where they are and educating them on how to stay healthy and minimize repeat hospital admissions. Moreover, he is interested in community health and assuring that underserved communities have access to -to up-to-date information and a non-biased provider whose main goal is to make all individuals feel comfortable during his or her most vulnerable and personal moments. Keelan recently completed his residency program in family medicine in Albany, Georgia, before becoming a hospitalist. He is a graduate, too, of Morehouse College, Meharry Medical College, and Tulane Freeman Business School. Keelan plans to combine the knowledge he gains as a hospitalist with his skill set from his MBA to eventually provide implementation strategies to hospitals and programs across the nation. So we definitely have two men who know what they're talking about, who's going to be helping us to address some of these issues, these disparities issues that we are finding among black men. So let's go ahead and bring them to the stage. What's going on, doctors? Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Maximize Your Brand podcast as we're talking all about the state of black men's health in America. How are you doing? Not bad, not bad. It's a pleasure to be here, man. Good, good. Well, I, I gave those brief introductions, but I'm going to give you an opportunity to share a little bit more about yourself and, you know, and share a little insight on why, you know, becoming a doctor and being in medicine was so important to you to put in all of this time and effort in going into medicine. And specifically, you know, going to Meharry means that you have some commitment to Uh, social justice, and some commitment to the underserved. So talk a little bit about that as well. And we'll start with Atalo. Again, thanks for having me. It's a a pleasure to be here with both of you. Obviously, Keelan and I, uh, we train together and and have a, a, and you and I, again, as frat brothers, this is uh, just a delight. But Social justice and, and health equity are things that I believe have been at the forefront of of both of our careers. I would say both Keelan and I for some time now. Um, if you go to Meharry Medical College, you have to have some idea of personal identity and your identity as a servant uh, in the healthcare in the healthcare space. So this is naturally aligned for us. The biggest decision, though, however, for me was realizing that 
through emergency medicine, I can serve as someone who actually, you know, provides frontline care, is able to provide care to anyone, regardless of their background or what they have in terms of finances to pay for their care, and really remove some of the barriers that preclude people from being able to achieve health equity. Uh, I've spent time doing more social emergency medicine lately, where it essentially addresses health disparities as it interfaces with the emergency uh, medical system. I love giving care, but more than anything, I love making sure that people who come from a variety of different backgrounds uh, have access and can minimize these social and structural drivers of health so that we can achieve optimal health outcomes. Awesome. Keelan? Okay. Again, I am Keelan Glosson. Thank you for having me again. I am very honored to sit here with both of you since I've known you for years. Um, but the biggest thing for me when it comes to medicine is making sure that I meet people where they are. And I think that's something that I personally took from my experience back at Meharry Medical College. And I specifically wanted to make sure that I did that in underserved communities. And what that means for me is simply being able to sit down and have those face-to-face -face conversations with people again at their most vulnerable times and intimate moments when it's difficult for them to be able to make a decision and it's a life-altering decision often and me as a hospitalist i'm able to really get down to the bottom of the problem and really come up with ways to decrease and reduce and minimize the repeat infractions and problems so that's something for me that's huge and big and being able to just combine my entire skill set. So that's something that keeps pushing me in the direction of medicine and making sure that I take care of those people who represent different parts of me. Well, thank you for sharing. You know, as as both of you were talking and thinking about today's topic, you know, my first question um, for either one of you is, you know, what is or has been the major issue and why do we continue as African-Americans and as black men in particular, why do we continue to struggle in this area of our health? You know, what determinants have you seen since you've been practicing medicine um, that, ha that, are, that keeps us in this cycle of being the worst when it comes to some of these um, diseases? I, I can quickly ch chime in on a couple of things. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about determinants and drivers, these are, are provocative words that people have been hearing more commonly over the last couple of years, right? Mm -hmm. Where uh, conversations around health outcomes have uh, basically spiked around the pandemic. Now, mm -hmm. we're talking about non-medical things that can affect someone's ability to live a normal life or a healthy life. Things right. like access, education, income, uh, employment, uh, insurance levels, you know, like these things can change someone's ability to live a normal, fulfilling life. But then I think for, for people of color, specifically black men, uh, there's added features, right. That are not so easily carved out. There's the threat of discrimination. There are, you know, systemic issues, things that like racism. And also I would add, you know, just general mistrust of healthcare, uh, because of historic atrocities uh, that have led us away from the doctor-patient uh, relationship. So we have to factor these things in when we think about the entire uh, spectrum of Black men and the arc of our health care uh, in the United States. Keelan, you want to share any 
Yeah, and kind of to extend from some of the points that Italo made, I have realized that one of the, the biggest or a few of the biggest barriers is actually getting people to come to the hospital, specifically, uh, specifically men of color, because I think historically it may have been perceived as one of those things that kind of implies a weakness. So having, again, those vulnerable moments and those discussions and conversations that may put you in a position where you feel like you're not quote unquote a man, I think that can be difficult for some people. And to extend from that, even when you are able to kind of get people to come in, the next hurdle is being able to get them to comply with the plan of care. And that is another big issue that I've realized because I can tell you all day that you have diabetes, high blood pressure, or congestive heart failure, but if you do not want to accept and take what we call ownership of your personal health and decide that I'm gonna keep up with, for instance, if I have diabetes, my A1C, I'm gonna take ownership of this and go with the plan of care that in this case, Dr. Glosson has provided me or whomever other PCP or provider you have access to has given you, I think that typically becomes another barrier that we often face in healthcare. So just being able to figure out ways socially how we can specifically as providers provide the information and access to care, because it's one thing to just say it's the access to care, but it's another thing when you have access, but you're not optimizing the access. That's something that we have to discuss as well. Right. So are we not finding, you know, is that still that mindset still prevalent even when uh, the the doctor, the physician, the provider is a person of color? Is that mindset still there and prevalent or does it, you know, subside when there's a person of color who's providing uh, the medical service? You know, what have you, is there more comfortability, I think is the question, when it's a person of color providing the, the medical service? You can answer, Keelan, go ahead. Yeah, so I will say that I have learned, especially in spaces that are more underserved, they appreciate more often than not to have people who look like them and who may have had shared similar experiences in life and one thing I can actually tell you as an anecdote recently that happened to me was that I had a gentleman and it almost like brought me to tears when he was like, look, he stared at me. And he was like, you know, like I marched so that you would be able to in this position. And like, you're the first position that I've had and to be so young and a black male and to be able to have these open kind of discussions, like to just remind myself again that I I, I literally marched so that you can be here. So I found it again in those spaces where they're not acclimatized to being able to see people who look like them, who maybe the impression they have of a physician is, the, the impression that many of us have, but an, a, a male who may be white, a white male who wears and dons a white coat. So that's something that we have to appreciate even as the physician or acknowledge as providers that there is a level of not only comfort but trust yeah. that we establish in those relationships and being able to in that small pocket of time make the best use of that time and be able to inculcate in those 
individuals the necessary steps that they need to take to be able to move their health forward in the direction yeah. that we want to go. You know, and even in that vein, I won't be honest with you. I, my, my doctor is white <laughs> and I have the hardest time trying to find a male of color with my insurance. Let me say that. And then you, it's a hard time when you even go online and try to identify, well, is, is it a person of color or is it not a person of color? You know, you don't have photos. You just have names and you got to call. I was calling and was like, well, is, the, is, is Dr. So-and-so, is he a black doctor? And right. I just got to the point where I was like, <laughs> I just need a doctor. I want to do my physical, so on and so forth. And so, you know, let's address that a little bit. Are we still... Challenge challenge in the area you know the percentage of you know because when you can take it for granted when you go to a school like Meharry or Howard or Morehouse and you think that there's a plethora of black doctors because you come from those types of environments but in all actuality the percentage is still very few still very few you know and so to overcome that challenge uh, I think it's going to be a hard feat to overcome because there's still very a large, I mean, a, a low percentage of black female and male physicians uh, in the in the medical field. No, I, I want to speak to that real quick. Yeah. So uh, I think by numbers, it's about uh, four to five percent. Right. So mm-hmm. four to five percent, four to five percent of all uh, physicians are identify as black. Mm-hmm. And the national demographics for black people are about 13%. So we're drastically underrepresented in that space. The likelihood of you seeing a black person, like you're more likely to see a person who is left-handed, probably more likely to see a person who has red hair, like than to see a black doctor on average. And that's kind of wild to think about, right? Um, the other thing is, we we have to acknowledge that black men specifically are not entering medical school, you know, at the same rates as they once were. There's a study that basically shows that the, there has been a trend where uh, essentially drop off has occurred among black men interested in medicine and entering medicine It's recently start to pick back up. But compared to 1978, far fewer black men who are like annually coming to the space of medicine. So like this is what we work against. And there's a bunch of different reasons why that exists, but what it comes down to is you can't really be what you don't see. And you just acknowledge the fact that, you know, seeing a black doctor uh, has like immense impact on the life of somebody. Now imagine a young black man or a young uh, black boy seeing a black doctor and how that changes the lived experience of that young man and through education can start to see themselves in that role. Uh, We have to do more of that. Unfortunately, there are few providers to stretch across that need. So it's kind of like a really weird, uh, difficult cycle to break. Which is why I wanted to even do this episode that will live, you know, for as long as I keep it on digital platforms was that I could have asked, you know, some of the older doctors that I know that have been, you know, in medicine for years, but I wanted to bring on two young doctors to expose people to the fact that they, that you exist (laughs) and that you're practicing, right. And that uh, you are about the business of ensuring uh, the healthcare of all people, but 
most particularly, we identify with each other because the first thing we see is that, hey, he looks like me, right? And that's the one of the reasons why I want to find me a black doctor, <laughs> because I know that when I communicate to him, he could probably better understand me a little bit better than someone else. But as of right now, my current doctor, he's he's doing good. I have physical, but I'm going to find me a black doctor. <laughs> it's going to happen. I mean, yeah. lived experience matters. We're not going to judge. We're yeah. not going to judge. <laughs> so, uh, Keelan, what what is your experience? You know, you go to work every day as a hospitalist, you know, what 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 are you and you're in middle georgia so i can only imagine um what what are your comments around that oh and and it's actually not every day it's seven days in a row and then seven days off that's okay. how I work as hospitalists um because i know many people often ask exactly what a hospitalist is so maybe mm. i should share that yeah. with people so um, which is interesting because Italo is an emergency medicine physician and I'm a hospitalist. So what typically happens is the emergency medicine physician will contact me and inform me that we have someone who he or she thinks is worthy of coming into the hospital to be admitted. And then I determine if this is an admission that the hospital should accept or if we should go or consider elsewhere. So that tends to be my day-to-day -day outside of um, going to see patients, rounding on patients, having detailed discussions with the ancillary staff, including case management and the other nursing staff, and being able to sit and have a number of family conversations. That takes up a good chunk of my time as well. So not as much time as probably Italo probably has a, a lot more time when it comes to just being in front of the patient for the most part. Um, but I spend a good amount of time not like being in front of the patient because then we may have to call family members and do those kinds of things. Um, but specifically me and I actually grew up here in Macon, Georgia, and I came back to specifically take care and kind of alleviate again the disparities within the community of people who I call or who are similar to my grandparents, uncles, aunts, those people. What I do often see again is the use of, or A, going back to primary care, it's not as many primary care physicians in these spaces or even younger ones who are vibrant because a number of the PCPs that they have here, they're overworked and stretched thin because they still have such a huge patient load and in those communities you can't it's very difficult to get the younger generation of physicians to kind of move into those spaces especially in the outpatient setting so that typically is a barrier and then you find out that these individuals subsequently end up using the emergency medicine room as kind of their primary care space and i'm pretty sure Italo can kind of extend to that. You see that very frequently in underserved populations. So it's it's an honor again, just to be able to sit and have these conversations with people. And because technically at my hospital, I'm like the younger physician. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting being in that position and like people just being so excited about having me and having these discussions and conversations. So that's something I take pride in and don't, at all, like, forget how important that is at any time or any moment. But those are some of the things that I see 
like in the our community here within yeah. the population. Yeah. That's good. Well, let's jump in a little bit deeper here. So I kind of did a little research before uh, today's conversation, but you know what are what are some of the top health concerns for Black men today that we're seeing? What are some of the top health concerns for Black men today that you're seeing or that um, you know that some of your other colleagues are seeing? I think the leading causes of death really haven't changed okay. over the past, like, maybe like 40 years. Uh, we mm. still would say heart disease and, and the entire spectrum of heart disease. So from, I would say, strokes to issues related to like the actual heart function and the the perfusion of the heart. So like heart attacks, uh, you'd also have to add in there like high blood pressure, diabetes, chronic illnesses. Right. Right. Um, and then there's like age breakdown. Right. So younger people tend to have more young black men, specifically more violence uh, as well as self-injury. Mm. Right. So then you have to put that into the, the picture. And then I think as you get older, you start thinking about the spectrum of cancer. So lung cancer, I would say colon cancer and then prostate cancer being a high concern for black men. Uh, and then there's like other features, for example, communicable diseases. This last couple of years, we've really been introduced to COVID that pushed up a, a pretty significant amount of uh, spaces in terms of being a, a national leading cause of death. But above that has been simple things that we've known about for a while, you know, yeah. just other general illnesses. And then there's HIV AIDS, which has now become more of a manageable condition. However, because black men tend to present later in life or later in the course of the disease, it's more fatal. So we have to think about that as well. You know, and it seems like you brought up COVID. It seems like COVID exposed, not exposed, because those of us who worked in uh, the area of healthcare, yeah. public health, and was always talking about health disparities. We knew what existed, but it seemed like COVID just reinforced the fact of what existed when it came to heart disease, high hyper, you know, uh, high blood pressure, diabetes, you know, because people were leaving here left and right. Fact. People were leaving here left and right. And so can you talk a little bit about either one of you could talk a little bit about what that experience was like during the pandemic? Yeah, I can kind of I'll give a, a firsthand experience because I want to say I think it probably hit some traction back in Albany, Georgia, where I did residency. So and I specifically remember it being a a set of funerals and some church services that kind of set it off, which are places and spaces that Black folk will congregate either way. So I think, honestly, what happened is that people with what we call comorbidities mm -hmm. and whether or not it was obesity, because obesity is actually linked to having a poor outcome when it comes to COVID-19, diabetes and things like congestive heart failure and um, COPD. It makes it more difficult for us to be able to get you back to baseline when you already have illnesses that place you in a high risk category. So then to just add a virus that we don't really know or did not know at that time how to manage or control 
and then we're throwing all that we have at the kitchen sink. I think that that was the underbelly was, that was exposed. It's, it's one of those things where if at baseline, we're already not doing a good job at managing our COPD or our diabetes, and we further add an additional complication, it makes it more difficult for us to get back to square one. And I think that's one of the things that we saw with COVID-19 kind of exposed that. Let me add to that yeah. uh, just briefly. So the, the other thing I wanted to mention specific to the disease is that, I mean, it, it is, it's been a grand revealer for a number of things, mm -hmm. right? We know that comorbidities exist, but the, the structural and systemic features, the racist <laughs> community, uh, medical system that we kind of operate in, it amplifies those things. Because it mm -hmm. was also not having access to the services being turned around at times for certain services. If you look at uh, any metropolitan area or urban area where there's higher disease incidence in general, you also mm -hmm. see fewer uh, places where they could have gotten tested. There were fewer physicians. The information or access to information was limited. And so all of these things kind of change the, uh, the, the landscape for people of color. Fewer uh, people who operated with telehealth visits so those comorbidities just festered and so throughout wow. two years we're not seeing doctors regularly so like all of these things kind of compounded the picture uh, my personal experience as as an er physician is i mean i remember when i'm in san francisco slash bay area so we were seeing cases early on and didn't know what it was the the hard part is when you start to see this manifest in front of you like wow okay so i'm seeing more people who are poor who are people of color who don't speak english as a first language who uh don't have health insurance die <laughs> you're seeing that happen in right. real time and there's not really an explanation for it that mm -hmm. people can give other than oh they they just happen to be sicker on average and i think that that is a feature of it but right. it, does not completely explain why there was a significant disparity. We've mm -hmm. now seen that change. Yeah. So for those of you just joining, we are talking about the state of black men's health in America. I am talking with doctors Atalo Brown and Keelan Glosson. And if you have any questions, this is a live discussion. If you have any questions, type those questions in the comments and I will flash those on the screen, but we'll continue our discussion, but wanted to stop and make sure that you know that we're talking about the state of black men's health and share this out, share this out with anyone whom you believe will find this discussion valuable to them uh, on your page. All you have to do is click that share button and people will be able to watch us live. And so as we we're talking about some of these things, you know, and, and we're always going to end on a high note. But we want to address some of the challenges that we're having, you know, in this country. Um, and some of that challenge has a lot to do, and I think Atalo kind of hit around it, um, finances, just the ability to have access to care. That some of these uh, disparities and things that we're, we're discussing uh, has its foundation in the in the idea of access. And so I would like for the two of you to talk about the importance of access to care. Because we, we started with the conversation where we were saying that uh, men of color or people of color have a tendency not to trust 
um, medical doctors and the health healthcare institutions, while at the same time, there is a challenge with access to care. So let's talk a little bit about that. Okay, um, I can start off. So one of the things that before we even get to thinking about medicine specifically, you got to go back to the foundation of these things is education. And when you have a space or a population of individuals who have historically not had access to education, the corollary of that is that you do not have access to jobs. And then when you do not have the access to jobs, the corollary of that is that you, you do not have access to insurance. So again, that is why I think we frequently see our many populations within the what we call the underserved communities use the emergency room as their kind of um, primary care space. Because when you do not have insurance and the emergency room doesn't necessarily require that you pay the bill immediately, but I'm sick and I need to be taken care of, like that's where I'm going to get some care from. So we have to kind of think about that in terms of thinking about the lack of access. It goes way back to point A before we even get to point C. Another thing that, again, that kind of complicates the picture is just the space and the environment when we have these communities where physicians, it's difficult to be able to um, get people and providers to come and especially a newer generation of physicians and nurse practitioners and PAs who are more than willing to make this space their new home, kind of like, for instance, where I am. So I live here in Macon, Georgia, but I work in Dublin, Georgia, which is 45 minutes away from where I am. So it's difficult to recruit. And that's something that I actually learned from business school and our human resources courses. It's very difficult for us to be able to get people to go there. So just having a lack of access to bodies that are able, able to provide you with care. And then to top it off, the care that we have there is limited because resources are limited. So it's a combination and it's not that one thing is either more important or requires more care. It's, it's a huge kind of Venn diagram and melting pot of a number of reasons as to why access to care is limited. And there's so many ways and efforts that we can kind of use to kind of bridge this gap. And I'm pretty sure Tyler will discuss with you some of his social initiatives that he has to kind of help with that. So. Yeah, that'd be great. That'd be great. Now, I appreciate the uh, the lob there. So just like Kilan said, you know, major issues with access have to deal with uh, what perceived barriers exist. Are, are, is it physically distanced from you? Meaning like, do you live in a rural area or do you live somewhere where there's not enough providers for your particular medical conditions? Are you uh, unable to get that care because of, you know, resource issues, meaning finances, insurance, housing, uh, whether or not you have a, a job that provides it or you have the education to seek it. So all of these things compound access issues. And then there's a quality concern, right? So the places that we, we I mean, most most cities are medically segregated where people who come from a specific background are only able to access the county hospital systems or the systems that are known for giving high cost, low quality care. So when we acknowledge these barriers, the 
the fallout from that is a chronically underserved community with poor health outcomes. Now, the way that we've been trying to essentially, or we've created interventions to go against this is entering spaces that were not traditionally designed for healthcare, but have always been cultural hubs for black people. Specifically for black men, right? We have two major spaces. We have churches, so faith-based organization, organizations, and then black barbershops. Uh, black, for black men, the barbershop is like the country club. You know, we were once never allowed in country clubs, so we made these other spaces, these gathering spaces, um, our homes. Black men will see a barber on in a year more times than they'll see a doctor. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's true. More times in, a, in the course of a year. Yeah. And over the course of a lifetime, those numbers might even be more staggering. So when you're talking about a guy going to get a lineup once a week, if there's a person that provides care in that space, asking those questions uh, about like, are you using condoms? Uh, do you feel sad or depressed? Have you been a target of violence or inner partner violence? And then are you seeing blood in your stool? Do you have a risk factor for colon cancer? Mm. Have you been taking your high blood pressure medications or you're checking your blood sugar? Do you know what an A1C is? Do you have children who are vaccinated for normal childhood vaccinations? Right. Like, these are questions that can be approached. And you think that it's weird to talk about this stuff in that space until you see it in front of you. And black men have a compelling ability to open up when they're around other men and it is normalized that our education around these things varies and that our desire to live is the same. We all want to live. We all right. want to have access to healthy lives and optimal outcomes. So that's how we kind of flip that environment on its head and gain access to these communities. The yeah. one thing that I will say is you got it's almost one of those you got to be a part of it to really understand it. When you try mm -hmm. to explain this to white colleagues or to other colleagues and they parachute into these communities and try to do the exact same thing, they don't get the same outcomes. Right. It's because they're just not familiar enough. So, you know, and, and you bring up something that I, I, I've been thinking about maybe past couple of months or so, just looking at recent incidents with gun violence and looking at the studies and the statistics in other countries and how they don't have the same issues. What is it about our country as it pertains to healthcare that you believe keeps us from moving forward and having a true universal healthcare system? I got three quick things. <laughs> One, failure to recognize racism as a public health crisis. Mm. Right, so racism is part of the, the machinery of gun violence, of violence in general, mm -hmm. right? So we have to understand that. The second thing I think is we have a poor system of evaluating bad policies, right? Where we don't have people actively engaged in policy making enough. So there's not enough civic engagement. And so when the policies that are bad exist, there's not enough people in the room to say, hey, this is a bad policy and evaluate it appropriately. And even to suggest better, uh, better recommendations or even completely remove those policies altogether. And yeah. I think the third thing essentially is there is a, the, the resources that are allocated to building communities are not as abundant as we'd like to think. Those resources 
are far underscaled. And the successful things, the successful community organizations, those activists that exist, those social justice warriors, the organizations that have been doing this for years are always struggling with the same solvency problems. They're struggling with the same, how do we scale something? How do we remain a fixture in these communities? And so when we don't effectively empower them with resources and technology the same way we would any other cutting edge or, or leading entity in the nation that it drives revenue to the country, mm -hmm you start to have these problems exist. So those three things, if you start to address them at an elemental level, you will see change in this gun violence conundrum, specifically when it comes to like inner city or community gun violence, larger scale gun violence, that's to me more policy driven. Yeah. Keelan, you have anything you wanna to add to that or? Yeah, I will specifically say that when it comes to why we do not have universal health care it's because i do not think it would benefit insurance providers i think that insurance providers kind of are at the helm of pushing whatever motives that they have and sometimes their goals do not coincide with the healthcare provider goals and i i will specifically say that going to business school for me first and then becoming a hospitalist, I'm able to see firsthand how the goals don't always match. And it becomes a, uh, it becomes a battle trying to make sure that you advocate for your patients, fairness and judicious healthcare, but simultaneously realizing that you're beholden to the insurance company at the yeah. end of the day. So kind of being able to reconcile those differences. And that is why many or some insurance companies are kind of moving into the direction of making sure that we or they hire healthcare providers or physicians to come on board to kind of develop that relationship of trust. And they have them do formal evaluations to make sure going back to one of the things that Atala was discussing policy, because the reality of it is that the some of these companies are the ones who back politicians and they pour money into their campaign so right. it, am i at the end of the day going to do what is medically correct because we come into this thing green me as a new physician i came into this specifically as an attending like i'm just going to take the best care of my patient but when i realized that a lot of what I do is based upon a metric system and me meeting metrics and guidelines that have been developed. Like that's the other side of medicine that a number of people do not mm -hmm. know. Even when, again, as healthcare providers, we can be extremely green and not understand that although we went to undergrad and medical school and we've received all this education in the sciences, just being able to accept that there's a business of medicine as well. And I think that's a difficult pill for people to swallow before we even are able to get them to swallow their um, high blood pressure or even diabetes, yeah. that kind of stuff. So, yeah. There is a business to medicine. There is a business to medicine. So we spent about 45 minutes talking about the problems and the things that we would like to see changed. But I am also a person of personal responsibility. <laughs> and so I would like to talk now about some solutions, some things that we can encourage our black men, um, people of color to start doing 
I'll never forget. Um, I was doing my internship in Jackson Madison County Hospital. It's an 800 bed hospital in administration. And I had the privilege of going to a conference where Dr. Kenneth Robinson uh, was at the time the Tennessee Health Commissioner. And I'll never forget the ending of one of his speeches that he gave at the conference. And he simply said, your health is in your hands. Your health is in your hands. And so let's talk a little bit about that. How do we start taking our health in our hands as black men who are suffering from these diseases at very high rates? What are some of the things that you would encourage us to do uh, to start taking our health in our hands? I think the first thing I tell everyone is it starts with really understanding what these different conditions are, right? Like we we're not in that age where we're so much distance from the information that we can't gain access to it. Most people have handheld devices. There are a bunch of uh, sites now that have come out of the pandemic as a uh, unforeseen benefit that now educate people at all levels uh, about their health statuses. So we have to really encourage the education. The second thing that I would encourage black men to do is go see a doctor, like actually spend time and, and try to develop a relationship with a doctor. We can work through the process of getting you to a black male doctor if that encourages your or that keeps uh, you engaged in your health care. But having a standard evaluation to know what you're starting with is important. And I think that the last thing I would say is for black men, there is uh, there, there's a part we have to reconcile with, which is maybe our father or our grandfathers had negative experiences with healthcare. Maybe we may have, we may have even experienced uh, something negative in our own uh, lives related to interacting with the healthcare system. Uh, we cannot let that be the deterrent for us seeking care. We can't let those uh, narratives keep us and bar us from having healthcare that we have a birth given right toward uh, to, to have. So I really think that there has to be this uh, the same level of hunger and passion that you might have for, you know, finishing a degree or for seeking a partner in life or for going to church or getting some clothes or getting a meal. Like we have to have that exact same hunger and desire to know our health statuses and to have a clear understanding of our way of navigating our own health. So that's good. Thanks for sharing that. Keelan. Um, the three points that I would add to that is that one thing and i'm big on it big on it with my patients when i was in residency and i was an outpatient provider i harped on it over and over with my patients you have to know your medication so it's one thing for me to give you an illness but and even not even just your medication the teller's already said this your a1c if you have diabetes but it's very important that if I, for instance, start you on a medication for high blood pressure or congestive heart failure, for instance, I know it can be tedious and it can be a lot, but unless that person has some level of dementia, I'm expecting you when it comes to owning your, having taking ownership of your illness and your health to know what you are putting in your body. 
So if whether or not you're taking this medication once a day, twice a day, that's also important because it, it kind of clues me into whether or not you're what we call compliant and adherent to the plan of care that we've kind of developed for you. So that's one thing I overemphasize. And even to patients I'm discharging from the hospital, know what you are putting in your body, know what your illness is. And if you just need to sit down again, like Atalo said, there's much many resources out there that you can use to kind of tackle this information. Now, don't come to us talking about what you learned on Google always, because <laughs> that tends to be what happens, because there can be information out there that anyone can like put into the universe, but at least try to get go to reliable sources and find out what you need to find out, which the set that leads me to the second point, actually, uh, something I used to emphasize as a primary care physician is when it comes to preventive care and medicine is to know your health screening schedule. So like, for instance, with women, it may be about cervical cancer and breast cancer. For men, we, we can kind of take a look at the United States uh, Preventive Task Force, the USPSTF and kind of .org, you can take a look there and look at the timeline or the schedule that you should kind of keep in mind when it comes to whether or not you should get screened for colorectal um, cancers or prostate cancer. So you can use those as resources as well. And I think the final challenge is specifically to healthcare providers. We have to make sure going back to something that myself and one of my co-residents, um, Dr. Tara Henderson, developed was the idea of meeting people where we are and or th where they are and just making sure that we, instead of using our huge lexicon and this kind of esoteric, these esoteric words that are well known to those of us who belong to the society of physicians, remember when we're face-to-face -face and interfacing with our patients, we need to be able to break it down. Like, I'm not going to tell you not to intake those carbohydrates. I'm going to yeah. tell you, you need to chill on the white rice, the white pastas, the white bread. So just being able to, again, remember that, yes, we know this language, but everyone doesn't relate to those words. It's more impactful and influential when I say chill on the white breads. And then they're like, oh, I get it. So just being able to, again, meet people where they are. So... Yeah, that's so good. You know, I, I had my own challenge and I was, I think, right at 42. And the doctor, every year they would always say, you know, watch your blood pressure, watch your blood pressure, watch your blood pressure. And it was always, quote unquote, borderline. So he finally put me on a low dose uh, blood pressure medication. But I just couldn't settle for that. And so literally, after I got put on that medication, I made it a point. I made it an intentional effort that the next year I was going to be off that medication. Whatever I needed to do, whether it was changing my eating habits, you know, I thought I was pretty healthy, you know, going to work out two or three times a week. But now I go at least five days a week. I learned that working out and training are two different things. <laughs> Uh, you know, because we like to go to the gym and do a few things. And mentally, we're thinking, oh, we did our part. But a lot of times we go to the gym, we're not really exerting what we need to be exerting in order to get the benefit from it. Um, and so I'm proud to say that I'm no longer on the medication. 
and I have been able to, you know, really deal with my stress level, which we've not really gotten into today around how stress impacts your health and mental health. I'm going to have some mental health professionals on next week to talk about mental health. So I think it's so important for us to just take responsibility for what we can do, you know, and, and this is not me saying don't take your medication. I'm saying that I took the medication with the goal of not having to be uh, prescribed that medication the following year when I did my my annual physical. So I have two more questions. You have okay. something you want to say? Go ahead. That's that's taking ownership of your health. We're yeah. okay with that. That's, that's literally the definition of taking ownership of your health knowing where you are and where you do not want to be and making sure that you take the strides and put in the effort and the work to get the results. So That's good. So the last two questions, uh, well, last one of the last questions is this, um, and I was talking, we were just, and it almost slipped my mind, but it's the idea of really taking, you know, taking more full responsibility for your health. I've seen, quote unquote, <laughs> TikToks and reels with there's a particular woman who is sharing what you should be asking your doctor uh, uh, for when you go get your annual physical. And so what should we say to our doctors when we're doing the annual checkup around the test? You know, should we say we want the full panel, everything, doc, check it? Or should we just leave it up to them based on what they think we should be tested for? I think that that is, so one is kind of a loaded question, right? Okay. Like if you have other medical conditions, your questions are going to change, Yeah. right? Like if you have a known heart issue, you need to be asking about your lipid panel. If you okay. have, you know, diabetes, you need to be asking about your A1C. The general things that I tell men, and I also go by age, if you are a young man or a man of sexually active uh, age, then you need to add that to your conversation around mm. a test. So you should be getting regularly tested for STIs, right? Um, if and, and HIV as well. If you are a young man and you are for the first time really engaging healthcare, then get the full panel. Understand what your uh, what your risk is for heart disease. Understand if you have had you know blood sugars that are out of control. Uh, and then I think that as you get older, you need to know other things. So for example, like, do you have family history of colon cancer? Or are you in need of um, a annual vaccination for something like pneumonia or for um, the flu? Like these things all change based upon the age group. Uh, I know Keelan is going to jump in there and give us the rest of the schedule. But my other one thing that I would say, you have to ask off the rip every single time. And this is not common yet. Do you have access to a nutritionist? So meaning like, can I, I can ask my primary doctor when I go to this visit, hey, can you refer me to a nutritionist or a nutrition specialist? Mm-hmm. Someone who can help you figure out how to eat appropriately, like a dietitian, essentially. The second thing is, do you have recommendations for mental health therapists or uh, anyone that is dealing with mental health issues? Not to suggest 
that there is someone who has issues, but really encouraging the access of these things is what I'm in, I'm trying to tell people up front. Like, let's normalize that behavior in addition to asking for a battery of exams uh, and lab tests. Yeah. Yeah. And to kind of extend from that, I think one, I find this as it's, it's a very difficult topic to kind of discuss at times, especially in Southern spaces and uh, spaces that may more or less be underserved is who you're having sex with, because that's yeah. important as well, because I need to know those answers to that question, because it can kind of change the course of action and the necessary screenings that we need to take and the discussions that we take. So just being able to kind of create the space that allows our patients to be comfortable in non-biased, non-judgmental way of saying, yes, this is who I'm engaging in sexually with, um, or going a step further, um, being able to, from the position of the patient, because uh, going to things like when we even get to the mental health thing, like if you just feel like something is off, mm -hmm. I think the relationship you've developed with your provider is very important then. And this is the reason as to why what we call like long-term continuity care is so important because if I've seen you for years and I can pick up on your social cues and your body language, I should be able to catch as a provider if you may come off as depressed or anxious. Mm. So those are things that are, I would challenge the providers as well, again, to be more tuned to or attuned to and be able to pick up on those social cues. And I, for instance, as Dr. Glosson in the outpatient setting, I need to be able to say that I've known John for two or three years. And if John now today seems a little off and I can tell something is going on, you should not have to come to me to ask me for to screen you for depression. Now, mm -hmm. A, I doing that every time I see you, but B, I should be able to, and again, this is why it's important for folks to come to their uh, PCPs, to go to their PCPs. Because again, when you have that continuity of care, it allows me to be able to pick up on these social cues so I can say, hey, we need to sit down and there's something I can tell going on with you and you're not your normal self. So let's talk about this and discuss this on a more personal, intimate level. So just being able to tackle those things in itself are hugely important and reasons as to why, again, continuity of care is important. Yeah. Well, this has been a great, great conversation. We already a little over an hour. And we could keep going on and on. There's so many different things. Don, I thank you for your comments there. Uh, she did have a question here around how are we taking care of our LGBTQ community of color? I think that's a, a great question um, that, you know, we can quickly, you know, have uh, a quick answer to. But the uh, after that, I, I think I want to kind of on a lighter note, because Keelan talked to me about this before we got on uh, today's talk. And I want to just talk about as well as uh, Atalo, you still rocking the dreads. Keelan over here got the yellow cap on. You know, these are not things that we typically would see, you know, from our doctors, you know, typically on these type of shows. They're coming on professional ties and shirts and this, that, and the other. But this is an opportunity for for us to see that there are doctors who come in many shapes, forms, fashions, 
um, and still can take care of you well. And so let's uh, hit on that question from Don real quick, and then we can kind of talk about the individuality of being a physician. <laughs> well, I can specifically say like things that I make sure uh, for me personally as someone who, when it comes to taking care and again and making sure that all people feel comfortable having those conversations, specifically when it comes to sex, I let my patient know. I jump right into it. Like, I need to know who you're having sex with. Because uh, I think when we're discussing the LGBTQ community, that typically is the issue. Just being able to say, this is who I'm having sex with. So I make sure that you are comfortable enough sharing that with me and let you know that, hey, like, we're, we're going to have this discussion. It's going to come from a non-biased place, but I need to know this because I need to come up with the best plan of care. So, again, just creating a space that is safe for those, for everyone to feel comfortable having these intimate conversations. I think that's just the most important thing. And from there, I know sometimes it, it's the thought that the care is drastically different. I, I think much of the care is the same. It's very similar. It's just being able to have the conversation is the first step in that direction. So that's that. That's what I'm going to say to it. I'm going to add a couple of things. So the biggest process is the learning and the, the unlearning and the learning on the side of the provider, right? Like we've had to do extensive retraining and understanding of the the unique needs that come from uh, any subpopulation or community that has an increased likelihood of having negative experiences in the hospital, of having medical conditions that go underdiagnosed because of biases that exist, right? So like this is just uh, uh, the LGBTQIA community uh, is significantly more likely to have uh, negative experiences and be biased or microaggressed against. We've had to really focus on making providers aware of their own biases in treating patients, but also knowing that like there are certain techniques and, and tactics that you can employ to create that safe space and to continue to disarm uh, the, the the stigma around all of the different things that have that we've heard in terms of these different communities. So that's my first thing. But personally, I come from the same type of background that Keelan comes from, where it's like, hey, I'm going to lead with with kindness. I'm going to lead with my sheer desire to give you the best care because you deserve it. Like you're here with me and I've always come to medicine with that approach. The second thing is I want you to feel like in eight minutes, you can give me a backstage pass to your life. And I want that backstage pass to you to know that that means a lot to me. It is like a golden ticket. And so once that is established, it's, it's almost like those those barriers start to just decrease and fall apart. Uh, and then I think the last thing for me is when I explain information, I come from a perspective of non-judgment and saying, like, listen, this is not an indictment of anybody's character. This is simply because I care the most that I can about you. You are the patient that I'm treating today. So mm -hmm. centering the patient, centering that experience, acknowledging and checking your biases at the door. Like, that's really how we approach it. So good. So good. So good. All right. So let's talk about this individuality and um non-traditional maybe maybe not so non-traditional but uh Keelan, I, I know this was a good opportunity to have a conversation around your hat and 
you being able to share a little bit around why that was important to you. So why don't you share? And then Atalo, if you want to chime in, go right ahead. I can actually. And you know, I I will attest this to people like Atalo because uh, what many of you may not know, I've known Atalo since undergrad. We went to Morehouse together and we went to Meharry together as well. Um, but Italo has always been committed to making sure that when it comes to who he is as a person and wearing or donning his dress, that if it changes the narrative of what a physician looks like, he's committed to it. And I can surely say that over the years and the decades, I have watched him grow into who he is and own that. And for me, when it comes to my cap, it came at a time when we were having the entire BLM uh, board Black Lives Matter movement and all that and hearing so many discussions about what a physician should look like and how typically people were acclimatized to us donning that white coat and it specifically being an older white gentleman who fits the mold of what a look like. And I think when you kind step into the space now for us, especially as millennial and upcoming physicians, that we don't necessarily fit that. Like Atella wears strips, we have many classmates who have tattoos and those things, but it does not take away from your intellect and ability to be able to take care of those people you care about. Specifically for me, I want to disarm people when it comes to a, a black male wearing a cap. And instead of thinking and associating it with some sort of gang affiliation or a threat, just recognize, because I walk in the hospital with my fitted cap, please mm-hmm. believe that consistently. I do not go into the patient's rooms unless it's like after 7 p.m. and it's something <laughs> but, um, but typically, if you catch me in the hallway, you'll catch me with it. But it, it's a nod to the fact that we wear many hats. And mm-hmm. it's okay for us to not fit the mold or the identity and the concept that we've kind of created along the way of what a physician should look like because it's not what it looks like for us anymore and it's not going to look like that anymore so just accepting that and just moving on with that but i must say that people like atello have inspired me to do that okay. <laughs> yeah i mean i've been i've been rocking uh locks throughout my entire journey in medicine and part of it has been a you know, the same way that you look at the rings of a tree and you can tell what has happened uh, in that year, whether there was a drought or an abundance of, of rain. And you can see those same things uh, with locks, right? Your locks, the length, they have different stories. Each lock ha- tells its own story. So that's part of it for me. The other reason is because I realized that like this to me is a, w- a way to build a nexus or a bridge with patients, right? I told patients like, hey, I, I know I look like someone in your family. I know I look like your grandson. I understand that because locks as a hairstyle has transcended so many different things about our culture. Uh, and, and so that has been a calling card. The other part is realizing that to our colleagues who are not familiar, that uh, I don't have to explain to you why I have this. All you need to understand is that my education got me here and that I'm every bit as qualified uh, to be a physician. We have of a bevy of physicians who look like different things, who come from different backgrounds, who sound different. You know, this is how we have to celebrate medicine because essentially the way medicine has functioned in America is 
under the ideology of the you know white European male. Uh, and so we've had to change that because patients no longer look just like the white European male. They come from everywhere. They look like everything. And so if this hairstyle allows me to gain a little bit more access than my peers and get that information that allows me to diagnose something or to advance their care a little bit better, I'm going to use it to my full advantage. Um, and I'll say this last part is the way that it affects young people. When you see, when they see you, I remember I, I work in a PZD as well. When they see me in the hallways and I got on, you know, my J's and I, I'll come through with some jogger pants and then they see the hair, they're like, yo, this dude is cool. He reminds me of my favorite athlete. He reminds me of my favorite musician or artist. And I tell them, yeah, but except I guarantee right now they couldn't tell you what's wrong with you. I can't and I can actually treat it. So that you see the way their faces light up and it's amazing. So good, so good, so good. Well, gentlemen, I appreciate you taking the time out to uh, share tonight and talk about some of these topics and just, you know, share your expertise. We definitely appreciate it. But before we go, I want to give both of you an opportunity to share parting words and encouraging words or anything that you think that you would like to bring awareness to um, before we close out tonight. So whoever would like to go first, go right I ahead. just want to... I want to start and just say, you know, I'm so thankful for this forum and I, I appreciate uh, the words that Keelan said. Uh, again, I've also watched him uh, turn into not just a great clinician, but really a healthcare leader uh, in doing so in communities that need more Keelan Glossons, that need more doctors who uh, come back and do the good work. So my last statement is, is essentially this. If you are in the audience and you're watching, like invest in your healthcare, invest with everything that you have. Uh, we are watching people uh, check out a lot sooner than we anticipated. And the last two years have been incredibly rough. What If there's any message that's come from the last two years, it is that uh, health is the number one priority. And we have to collectively value it enough to shift the needle on it. Uh, as a provider, there are more of us than you think willing and ready to respond to your questions, to activate you in a way that uh, honors your individuality and it honors your uh, autonomy over your health choices. But that first step starts with you. You really got to double down on it. Mm -hmm. um, and again, I will say I am very grateful to have this opportunity to sit with both of you and specifically to come full circle and knowing the journey that myself and Natalia have had to get here is something that heartfelt to be able to sit in this moment and have this discussion and be able to hopefully impact and be influential to people but I think for patients the one message or inspiration that I can give is to just know that we are here in the sense that there are people who relate to you in some aspect and it doesn't matter like what color creed or any of that those shared experiences can be sought after and acquired it may take a little extra looking and learning but you know that there are people who really genuinely have your best interests and you can trust and we really want to take care of you because i know there tends to be a distrust sometimes there 
And the other thing, just to people, even people who want to become physicians, like just keep going. So then it's, it's not going to be an easy task. There is going to be, there are going to be moments that are going to cause you to question whether or not this is the path you should be on. But um, both the child and I can attest to that those are easily overcome. And then you'll look back at them and realize how much character they built and how much resilience they built. And over time, you'll just keep moving forward. It will just be like water rolling off your back. So just keep pushing. Gentlemen. I want to thank you for joining me on the Maximizer Brand Podcast. These are different topics that I normally talk about, but I wanted to dedicate this month to talking about men's health. And so, so appreciative you took time out of your busy schedule to join me today. Those of you who are watching tonight, please share this out with anyone whom you believe will find great value out of this. I am so dedicated to helping people to maximize their brand but you can maximize your brand through taking your health in your own hands. <laughs> so I am so thankful for you joining me tonight. If you're not subscribed to the podcast, all you have to do is go to iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play Music, whichever platform you love, and subscribe to the Maximize Your Brand podcast. But until next time, just remember this. Your health is in your hands. Take care. Mm-hmm.